Kia ora koutou, I'm Nick Tuki, New Zealand's Threatened Species Ambassador, and this is the Doc Sounds of Science podcast. Kia ora, ko Nick Tuki tēnei. He konai i pirangi tēnei e pā ana ki ngā Sounds of Science. Every episode, we talk about the work being done behind the scenes by DOC's technical experts, scientists, rangers, and the experts in between. Today on the show, we have self-confessed insect nerd, Eric Edwards. G'day, Eric. Kia ora, Nick. Ko Eric Edwards, tōko ingoa. Kei te papa atawhai, ahau, e mahiana. Kia ora. Eric, tell me a little bit about your role at DOC. What do you do? It's science advice for saving things is how I describe it to people, yeah. So what does that mean? So if I break it down, obviously I have a background as, as a freshwater biologist and an entomologist, you know, insect sort of stuff, insect nerd. You know, the science advice, for me it's about, you know, the places they live as much as, as, much as the insects themselves. And so it is about whole ecosystems and how to manage a habitat is often the sort of thing that I try to help with. What got you into insects? You know, you talk to a lot of people in DOC and they're all about the birds and they love the big feathery things. What was it that uh, fascinated you about the the little things? You're right. You know, now I'm in an amazing situation where I get paid to do what I'm doing, you know, to actually have a bug net in my hand and and get out in the bush and and look for things. It does sound childish, doesn't it? And and it starts, I guess, as a child. And so, you know, I was interested in snails and, and moths and stream insects from a young age. And it's one of those things that uh, I always knew what I would, would try to contribute to and and, uh, and that career has developed, you know, university and, and, and in the role I'm in. Do you think people pay enough attention to invertebrates as a whole? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, you know, why place an expectation that all of society should be as galvanised and interested as, you know, as I am? I think, actually, it would be neat if more people were interested in making observations of what's around them and, and you know, trying to understand. And so I always wanted to understand and know the plants and animals around me. It's something I've been thinking about quite a lot lately is a phrase that someone raised with me um, not that long ago, uh, but it's been around for 20 years, about the extinction of experience, how humans have become so disconnected from the nature in their everyday lives, they risk losing it because they've lost that connection. And I suppose with invertebrates, insects, when you're a kid, they're the very things that you're often putting in jars or poking and you know wanting to know more about. Do you think insects help us with that extinction of experience? Sure. People mostly don't notice insects in their daily life, except... If you, you, if you know, they are actually everywhere. <laughs> they are actually everywhere. So even even in the urban environment, you know, there are insects everywhere, and and, and you can tune into it. You know, your pet does, and uh, your children often do, and somehow or other, you eventually tune them out of your lives. But you know, they are there. What would you say is the best part of your job? Yeah, it's an extraordinary privilege, I guess. And I've worked for many years in, in field situations where you can be part of a team that looks at a piece of land and says, you know, what is the future for that piece of land, and. And in some cases, you know, you make a decision that becomes something that will last more than your own lifetime. Yeah, that's a pretty powerful thing, isn't it? That influence around the policy table is something that might last for decades or even hundreds of years if you get the, if you get the impact right. Sure. I guess, you know, New Zealand has, has got far more to it than the stories that are told at times, and I'm interested to, you know, to project more of those stories. And so, you know, we describe New Zealand as a place that has... It's a biodiversity hotspot in the world, and, and so it is. You know, but actually, you know, that doesn't do justice to, to uh, what New Zealand is really like. You know, we have things that are endemic to New Zealand. They're not just endemic to New Zealand. 
they're endemic to some part of New Zealand. And actually every part of New Zealand has its own stories and, and quite often, you know, it's a snail world or the insect world that actually powerfully explains that, you know, there are many creatures that are only found in one district of New Zealand. I've started thinking about this a lot um, in terms of how particularly the smaller things can describe the history of the landscape. You know, like we've got um, mudfish species, for example, that are clearly have become their own species through volcanic and tectonic uh, you know, um, action over time. Snails is a classic because they don't move very far. The kind of retreat and descent of glaciers and the, the uplift of the, the southern Alps creates just this whole array of species which tells the story of the land. Absolutely, you know. Snails' wings are quite poorly developed. You know, so, you know, <laughs> Said the entomologist. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know. I mean, of course, you know, moths are one of my passions, aren't they? But, but you know, snails' wings aren't that well developed. And so they do, they do tell a powerful story about, about association with place. And you referred to, you know, volcanism and also uplift. And so that's right. I mean, it's, it's like the history of New Zealand is so important to understanding what we have now and understanding the antiquity of, of you know, the fabric of life on our land surfaces in New Zealand. And sometimes the creature that, that you find, you know, the butterfly association, the host plant that it lives on, and the host plant's association with a certain class of soil and a certain climate, you realise that actually that uh, insect won't be found in, another, in, you know, in an adjacent place. It's, you know, it's unique to that area. Well, we've learned that the hard way with some of our invertebrates, haven't we? I mean, the old Augusta snails on the West Coast, which turned out to have evolved to live on a highly rich coal seam on the West Coast and don't really do very well anywhere else is, a, is sort of a sad example of just how niche our invertebrates can be. That's right. That's right. The basement geology, um, you know, has has that pattern on it, and and maybe down there's you know there's a snail. There's also a moth, and there's a few other things too. Yeah. So um, your passion for moths has been around for quite some time. Do you want to talk me through what it was like? You know, how you started in this field right from when you were a wee fella um, through to now. Well, yeah, I guess my family has a little bit of a farming background, but my father was a meta observer, so, you know, I guess the idea of making observations in nature or outdoors is always something. Eh? You know, I've had the privilege of growing up in the South Island, you know, Tiwai Ponamu, and I've lived in almost every part of it. You know, uh, I was born on the West Coast and lived in Motueka, went to university in, in Canterbury and Otago, and then worked for many years based in the southern South Island, you know, sub-Antarctic islands, Fjordland, Stewart Island. And because I'm an insect nerd... You get invited out, you know, to different things to, you know, to get involved in, in surveying and interpreting and valuing, um, you know, in a team environment with bird people and lizard people and plant people, and and so you know those 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 jobs have been um, in the high country of the South Island. They've been on the west coast. They've been on subantarctic islands, but they've also been in the Pacific Islands. Actually, you know, I've worked in, you know, in Samoa and Tonga and. And Nari, you know, I have crazy stories of adventuring and, and with the people that uh, that you have the privilege to spend time and discuss those stories with. What do you think happens, except for people like you and probably to a lesser extent me and lots of our colleagues here in Doc, but for the ordinary average person, you know, I think everybody go. maybe they don't, you might be able to correct me, everybody goes through that thing when their kids, I had a pet, uh, cat, I had several pet caterpillars, I had a pet praying mantis, uh, I thought I'd discovered a whole new species of insect when I found a whole lot of um, dragon damselfly larvae in my local creek that I had in a jar for a while. You know, you when you're kids, you're fascinated yes. with the invertebrate world. And then, as you say, by the time you're grown-ups, you tend not to see them anymore. What, yeah. what do you think happens there? Yeah, it's an interesting story. Isn't it? I mean, I was, I was at a 
a science Sunday at the Botanic Gardens in Wellington recently, and it was a rainy day, and a mob of children and about 20 adults you know, we were insistent to go out in it. So we walked up the path and I, you know, I hoped that the kids would find something for me to, to discuss. We stood on, underneath a canopy, you know, with a drizzle and um, someone found a spider and, and we just, you know, we talked about spiders and, and their place. You know, the adults there, they realised that, that, that um, you know, their wonder and delight is not quite the same and their perception of the environment is not quite the same. And, and, and you could contrast it. I was cheeky with them and said, you know, who loves spiders and, and all the kids put their hands up and two adults put their hand up, you know, it's like, and I said, well, you know, something happens between being a kid and being an adult, but there's still something to, um, to value and, and, and have respect for, um, even if, even if it's not something you need, you know, you want to care about as a part of your life. What's your weirdest day at work been? Yeah, there's plenty of those, aren't there? I guess, <laughs> but, uh, especially when you're it, a bug nerd, it, it is hard to say, you know, I have been in some isolated places and remote places and I guess I was working with Micronesian people in their own place um, in Nauru and I'd read before we went there that there was just one single invertebrate that was unique to that island and it turns out that it's a, a true bug, a hopping bug that lives on on um, algae, on coral stacks that stick out of the sea in the, in the intertidal so you can wade wow. around, so you can walk around in the, in, in the tropical sea there and these lumps of coral stick out um, with these true bugs on them. It's a family of bugs that's coastal, first described in, in Oman. Wow. And there are only three species in the world, and one of them is unique to Nauru. And we tried to find it, and, and it's the size of a flea you know, and hops like one. And, and so um, there are Micronesians there with me going, what is this all about? <laughs> Why are we standing in these waves? Trying to catch at, a trying flea. Trying to catch a flea <laughs> off this lump of coral, you know, and... And you can imagine the delight when one actually landed on the surface of the water next to the coral, and we and and we lifted it out on the net, and 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 you know, had a look under a magnifying glass, and said, "Yes, we have rediscovered this um, this, if you like, bug, true bug, but a flea-like true bug." And and you know, it's like, well, that is that's you know, that's the only that's still the only unique uh, critter for that island. They uh, should it's neat. They should put it on their flag. Yeah. <laughs> so that can't be your only weird experience you've had catching weird bugs what, what else have you got i guess what makes it weird sometimes is, is that, you know the people you're with you know are trying to understand what it is that excites you about this but uh you know i have come back from Turutu matangi island once uh, back in the, in the hauraki and and it turns out you know there's always a schedule of things to do and and there was a meeting of of the bug society in auckland and i went to that you know i have to curate on the run you know um, when i'm surveying you have to you know Try and understand and interpret what you're surveying, you know, as soon as you've done the survey. And so, um, you know, I would collect examples of, of things and then try and work out what they are. And you've got to do that straight away. And so I have a, I'm, I'm sitting there curating um, in this meeting at the back of, in the back of a meeting because I've got to get it done. And uh, Rude Kleinpast, a very famous entomologist in New Zealand, was there too. And a moth flew up from a jar. And, uh, and so in the middle of the meeting, uh, uh, you know, it was odd enough to be curating while it's going on, but he got on the desk and ran across the top of the desk um, all around us chasing this moth. It was from Kurumatangi and we had to, you know, we had to catch it and we wanted to know what lived on that island. So you could just imagine. <laughs> well, can I just, let's just talk a little bit about mm. this word curating because I've watched you curating and I think mm. you're being a little euphemistic. Yes. One thing uh, that always staggers me when I'm watching entomologists work, and I think the last time I saw you do it, and Rude was there as well, was at Pukaha Mount Bruce. We did a bioblitz. And uh, I think I realised then that you were like, 
was you were like some kind of you know like insect Jack the Ripper because there was all kinds of catching and killing and stuffing things into jars going on. So how do you how do you reconcile? Tell me a little bit about yeah. how you curate. And then how do you reconcile that with your comment earlier about saving all the wee things? I know. How can you be a conservation biologist and also, you know, um, sacrifice so many insects? You know, it's, it's interesting. We are – that's one of the fascinations of being an, an insect biologist, actually, is that we are still in the age of discovery, very much so. And, and so, you know, while, while for, for New Zealand's vascular plants and for New Zealand's birds, you can pick up a guidebook – and pick up your binoculars or go and look at a leaf, you know, and you can say, oh, here it is in the sky book. I know what it is. You know, try doing that for insects, okay? It is not the case with insects. You can't, you, you know, we don't have good guidebooks that can, can do that. And besides, the way the insects are small and fly past you or, or hide under leaf litter or something, you've got to be much more inquiring to do it. And, 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 and a little bit bloodthirsty because just to paint the picture of what I saw, it was probably about 10 o'clock at night, and here was this madman sitting on a sheet in the middle of the bush, surrounded by people, catching everything that was coming towards. And you had a light, didn't you? So like yes. a light trap. Can you explain um, yeah. what that is for the uninitiated? One of the neat things about moths is that quite a lot of them are day. Uh, you know, there's a few day active moths, but actually a lot of moths are night active, and and um, they're pretty silly when they're night active. If you put a bright light out. Um, then they just wander towards it you know, on the wing. They fly in. And, and so you, know, you can quickly get a, a good sample of what lives there. And it's a powerful story, you know. I mean, when it comes to curating. Killing. You know, yeah, killing. Okay, sacrificing. <laughs> um, you, know, you have an insect that has a threat status the same as, as a kokako, let's say, you know, a, a treasured bird. Kokako spreading biology, the number of kokako that live in the world, so different. So, so different to how insects live. You know, they can they can breed in tremendous numbers in a short amount of time, and 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 they can be incredibly abundant though you can't see many of them. The population biology on them is such that if you sample a couple of individuals, it makes no difference to their population, but it makes a powerful lot of difference if you can tell the story from taking those individuals and find out what they are. That the ability to to interpret um, is is actually in the greater good for that population. You guys really are pioneers because one of the things that I've learnt recently is and you can correct me if I'm wrong but my understanding that is that of all of our data deficient species that live on land so data deficient being things we kind of know about but we don't really know how to manage them or really where they are or what they're up to uh 89% of those are plants and invertebrates so you kind of got a job for life right yes that's right you know where do you start <laughs> Because it takes time. It takes time to, to find um, the cryptic things and, and then to identify um, what it is that, that you're holding and to, you know, to develop that experience and, and ability. Um, there's not many people that have. And, and so you know, I, I wonder how society will take that on um, in, in terms of retaining what is the legacy that we have in front of us now and how it's declining. So what do you consider is one of your greatest success stories so far? Because you said you've got lots of ideas. <laughs> So while I have a role to do with native invertebrates, because I'm an insect person, I also understand the invasive pest insects. You know, I'm aware of wasps in New Zealand and the tremendous impact that wasps have. You know, a million hectares of the South Island beach forest is infested every season um, in such a way that the wasps outweigh you know, the, the birds and the possums and stoats around. The tremendous impact that those wasps have, you, you feel it as an entomologist because you know, they are 
omnivores, they're consuming you know, the insects, insect life and, and honey juice out of the beech forest. And, and, and so I got involved in that. And you know, I guess one of the things that is, is exciting is to, is to lead a project um, to, to, to fully recognise incredible research that was done at Nelson Lakes National Park. A piece of research that had evolved through time with with um, with the staff there and and with the Crown Research Agency's scientists working together, and they had had developed a system of of, of bait stations for controlling wasps, where otherwise in New Zealand all you can do is try and find the nests, and then destroy those. You know, so how would you protect five hectares of of bush? You know, trying to find each nest, it's a tremendous challenge. And so wasp bait stations can be used. It turns out over 500 hectares or 1,000 hectares or along a 40-kilometre track. And so my job, I decided, was to unlock that potential of that tool. And, and it was a tremendous process to go through. And now we have a product that's manufactured. It's called Vespex. And, and you can use it all over New Zealand uh, to control wasps. And you know, it's now something that, that the beekeeping industry has embraced. And, and so have, have foresters. And, and, and enable Tasman National Park, for example, you know, that coastal track, it used to be a place where bathers and, and trampers every year got stung you know, quite a lot, but now they're not. And so, you know, there are places all over New Zealand where, where people um, tell the story of how their lives are changed by being in the outdoors without wasps because of, because of this. And, and, and so, you know, it was great um, to unlock that potential and be a part of the team um, that did it. Well, I think you've done an incredible job. You touched on your time down south, and I just want to briefly travel you to the Subantarctic Islands and what on earth you were looking at down there. I, I've been lucky enough to travel around the Subantarctic a couple of times, and they are, I've heard them described as the Galapagos of the south. Do you think people truly understand the, the natural splendour and um, and just kind of nature overload of the subantarctics. Of course, it's a, it's a privilege that you know that, that I've had that others haven't had. Subantarctic is you know it, you just have a sense of history and when you're there. What kind of invertebrates do you find down there? There are giant weevils living on on giant herbs. Streams are interesting there too because I have a background as a stream ecologist. So there there are um, it is cold and it does form blanket peat in many parts of those islands. And the streams flow in underground. They actually tunnel through the peat, the streams. And, and they're like cave streams with like a cave fauna inside them. And so it was interesting to sample um, streams in, in the peat areas where I basically had to sort of um, lie down in a hole with only my feet sticking out, <laughs> trying to take a sample of the insects that were in that stream. And I discovered that actually uh, the crustaceans that live in the sea had migrated well up into the streams. I guess it's, these are far offshore islands, and so, and so the fauna is... You know, it's not a, it's not a really rich fauna, but it's a unique fauna and a unique situation, and and uh, and so the the insects are represented there. The many many that were unique to the island, um, and then they have unique associations as well. I've got a note here about Adams Island and something about an interaction you had with a poo patch. Can you tell me what <laughs> on earth that is, please? Sure. <laughs> you know, I talk about marine bird. You know. Marine life bringing, you know, the birds bringing resources onto the land, and and so Adams Island is uh, is one of those places that no rodent has ever been on, and it's hard to say for New Zealand. And there's been no fire there, and there's been no pigs or any other sort of thing on that island. Um, you know, it's far enough north that it still has tall forest on it, and 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 so you know it is actually one of the most pristine places on the planet, and and very very important. Um, uh, legacy that we must take into the future as it is now. But the giant, um, the giant albatross that live there, 
um, Antipodes albatross that live on that island you know, with a wingspan of two meters. They produce pretty, you know, quite a sizable poo patch around their nests. <laughs> you know, it's meters wide, it's several meters wide. And, and so all the tussock is lush there and the herbs are extraordinary around there. And, and, and believe it or not, the insects are too, you know. So yeah, it's where, it's where some beetles and moths do rather well. And, and so that's a place where you dive down on your hands and knees and, 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 and just stick around and, and, and just see how, um, how, it, how it contrasts. You know, then you do that in an adjacent area that isn't the poo patch and see the difference. Um, you know, it's, it's marvellous. It is, isn't it? I, I always feel that that's the one thing people miss when they're talking about re- restoring places on the mainland and they want to bring back, you know, this kind of bird or yeah. that kind of bird. My view is we should always try really hard to bring the seabirds back first and let them poo all over, the, let them create poo patches and drive that ecosystem function. There's modelling that, that tells us where the birds once lived. And so, you know, I'm interested in those sorts of places and, and I would, I'd like to fast forward it. I often think we should get a crop dusting aircraft and just go across them and actually, you know, actually you know, re, 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 redistribute the guano into those places and, and drive that ecosystem like it was once was driven. And without waiting for the birds. Yeah, without waiting for those birds to arrive back. It's not bad. Invertebrates often rely on moist, cool environments, particularly in New Zealand, which has evolved in a temperate area. How worried are you as as an entomologist about the impact of climate change, and are we seeing it already? Sure, we're seeing it already, and and sure, it's a concern. And you know, how resilient are our our systems going to be, and ecosystems in New Zealand? How resilient will they be? You know, there are tragic things that have, you know, that are well underway now. You know, we've lost our snowbank faunas from the Alpines. You know, it's a story that's not that well told yet. But, but you know, snow lie on the ground for two, three months of the year. Um, you know, that, that creates a situation of, of extraordinary herb and, and short grass associations um, and things that live in those. Um, whereas when that, when that snow doesn't lie like that, it only lies for a few weeks or, or less, you know, then, then the tall grasses are take over and, and those systems disappear or, or the hydrology changes actually the moisture regime in the soil changes it's been changing rapidly, it's changing rapidly as we speak and and, and so um, the richness of the indigenous component of our alpines in New Zealand it's going to have to, it's, that pattern will be expressed very differently and in some cases some things will be lost and uh, the Department of Conservation or any steward of those landscapes, whoever they are, is not going to be able to push that back and so retaining, retaining resilient ecosystems and, and, and retaining as many species as we can, we have to think pretty crafty about it. We've got to bring technology to these things. What would your one wish be for the more than 87% of us now who live in towns and cities and are particularly connected to the nature, especially the little creepy crawly nature that sometimes bites and stings? Yeah. Uh, what could, what's one thing we could all do to kind of turn that around? I guess it's to be... Early adopters of, of the new ideas, actually. Um, you know, that is something that I have been thinking about, you know, when I talked about you know, wasp control before. You know, that's just a step, you know. Um, there are other pests out there, and, and killing wasps, you know, over a thousand hectares is, is, you know, that's extraordinary relief for those ecosystems and, and for people, but, but you'd like to be doing it over much more than that. And, and so, you know, the, 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 the nub of the idea in the predator free. I think there is something about about us all embracing that and being prepared to take the risks of not doing this as something. You know, we talk about the risks of a new of a new idea or a new tool. Oh, this hasn't been tried before, so um, so we be cautious about it. But actually, what's at stake is is rapid change if we don't if we don't try these new ideas. Eric, 
You've been fantastic to yarn to, as always. I, I always love to yarn to entomologists. Mm. I secretly think you're all a bit mad, but I kind of love that. Mm. Uh, and I think you're also kind of a philosopher and an entomologist in the same in the in the same box. And I think that's really that's really to be admired. So uh, thank you very much for your time. I hope now that everybody listening will immediately go out and maybe not kill so many things as you do, but go and have a look at the little things and think about what we can do to uh, help them out in future. Thank you very much. Sure, Nick. That's it for this episode. If you like what you heard, show us some love with a five-star rating. The Doc Sounds of Science podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts, so subscribe now and never miss an episode.